Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, good morning. This is Chris Buck in Glasgow. Thanks for your interesting and engaging podcast as always. Um, I've learnt finally why Hosswind's Dan got his name. Listened to you guys for years and never knew. Um, just as the race went through Slapton Sands, I wondered if you knew about the military disaster that befell there in World War II. Um, it was one of the training grounds for D-Day. It was selected because the um, beach was very similar to the surrounding terrain, was very similar to Utah Beach. So 3,000 inhabitants of the Slapton area were evacuated in the war. Um, they wouldn't have known why, of course. And many would have never even left the village before they were, they were evacuated. Um, in April 1944, there was a large-scale exercise rehearsal for D-Day. But communication problems um, led to a number of friendly fire um, episodes. And for some reason, I, I don't know exactly why, but there was um, an attack by German e-boats, which resulted in the death of at least 749 US servicemen. So, a bit of history on our doorsteps that race went past the other day. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hello, Ned. What was that? Uh, that was an amazing contribution by um, our correspondent and our loyal listener, Chris Buck, uh, who was just telling us about the extraordinary World War II disaster at Slapton Sands, which um, I'm sure I'm not alone in knowing absolutely nothing about. But no, it ch- I, I, I knew nothing about that. And um, yeah, I know I'm a, a it, bit of an amateur on the old... Uh, Military history and all that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, no, no, it's uh, news to me. And I guess it's one of those things that that got vastly, uh, grossly overshadowed by what happened on the continent. People tend to brush over, I guess, what happened. So I read, a, I read a book years ago called The Bedford Boys. And I was given it simply because I grew up in Bedford, in, in Bedfordshire in England, you know. Mm. Um, but The Bedford Boys got nothing to do with that, save for the fact that, um, you know, by the coincidence of the name. But The Bedford Boys is about a group of um, young men from America, from a really small, I mean, there are loads of places called Bedford in, in, in North mm. America, in, in the United States. Um, but this was a particularly small Bedford community who were drafted in the Second World War and crossed the Atlantic to go and land in the Normandy landings. And I think, I think I'm right. It's a long time since I've read this book. But I think I'm right in saying the Bedford boys, all of whom knew each other, many of whom were were related, ended up on one of the, landing craft together and they were the first landing craft you know to, to to kind of make land on utah or omaha beach or wherever it was and of course you know tragically o- almost all of them if not all of them died um huh. so it wiped out you know all the young men from this community and it was it's kind of like insane tragedy really when you think about it you know tragedy piled upon tragedy in that sense but yeah but the reason I'm mentioning that is that I seem to remember that um, 
as this as it tells the story of the Bedford Boys, as thousands of Americans were crossing the water in these big converted uh, liners that were kind of turned mm. into floating barracks to take such large numbers of troops across the Atlantic, um, one of these uh, ships ran aground and sank. I think off the off the off the coast of um, Liverpool, you know, trying to dock in Liverpool mm. and just sank. It wasn't attacked, I don't think, by German U-boats. I think it just, I think it just sank, um, had a, a maritime accident. And I think I'm right in saying that hundreds, of, if not thousands of American GIs lost their lives. Oh, God. You know, and we think about the Titanic and everything mm. and that gets remembered, but stuff like that, just because it wasn't on the front line, it just... Mm. There's so know. much in the Second World War that we don't know about. And the first and most wars, I guess. Yeah. But it's really interesting, actually. And this is, again, those, because um, this is mad. So I was out doing a night ride with my sons this evening, because uh, our local village has uh, this annual uh, nocturnal walk where they set off at like 8.30 in the evening and it's a seven kilometer walk and everyone goes down old and young. Beautiful. And, uh, and obviously we, the millers went down on our bikes, me and my two boys rode the three Ks down to the village, lights on and, and set off on our own. And we were just having a, a nice time, the three of us. And we got talking about, because there were snails everywhere for some reason. I was coming up with names for them. And we ended up uh, falling on uh, Slarsel, which was a slug with a castle on its back. But then we got onto, like, we were out and I was trying to explain some code words. And you sh- I said, oh, you should use that as a code word if you do a den. It's like, what do you call a snail? And if it, they say Slarsel, they're one of your friends, but you have Brilliant. to teach them that. Brilliant. But then, then actually, and this is madness, I was saying, actually, and I'll explain to you guys, in the Second World War, there used to be a, a code word they'd use uh, f- to find friendlies. Because I said, look how dark it is here. If, if you were flown in, there were troops that were flown in and dropped in, and they'd land in different places, and they wouldn't know where they were, where their friends had gone. So they'd whisper thunder. And if the other person said lightning, uh, they'd know it was one of theirs. If it didn't, it was like, shut up and get ready to fire. And so I was te- kind of going through all these things with them. So it's really funny, funny, coincidental that we're talking about this because I was teaching, explains them what it must have been like to have jumped out of plane into some a foreign land and it was all dark and then having to find your friends and come up with code words. And that all came about because we were, there were so many snails on the ground and we christened them slarsels. So yeah, there you go. Amazing. I, I remember, my- I remember when you and I arrived in the Cherbourg Peninsula to do our first Tour de France commentary that year that Cavendish you know, road to victory at Utah mm. Beach. I remember you'd done quite a lot of reading. You were fascinated. You'd done quite a lot of reading about the Normandy landings, hadn't you? And you, yeah, yeah. some of the stuff you told me then that you'd read kind of blew my mind about the states that the American paratroopers were kind of prepared, to, you yeah. know, that the kind of like the, the attitude with which they were sent into war mm. was not gentlemanly conduct necessarily, was it? It was um, extreme violence. Yeah. And it was, I mean, the, the paratroopers, they were dropping behind lines and, you know, it's do or die. And it's really interesting. So I, I, I do find all that fascinating. So it's the human condition at large, the kind of how you will act in those situations. And, and, uh, it's, you just don't know how you will, but you're trained to do things. And it's, I think even in everyday life, they try and apply kind of a lot of uh, military stuff, but th- there comes a point where you don't know what you do in those circumstances. And it's really interesting when you're out in the country where I am and imagine what it was like back then, where there's no electricity and you're dropped into a foreign land and you're all of a sudden on your own after the, the all that training and realizing that there's, there were, you had a map in your pocket that was wet. You might have lost your gun and the mm. jump. And then it's like, now what do I do? And you're just hearing 
shots on the horizon. And yeah, I, I, I just can't imagine it. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's fascinating. And I, it, that is for that reason, because of all the books I've read and, and obviously I come from my godfather's Royal Marine, my, my father's wing commander, and I kind of was immersed in it and also read a lot about it. And so I, I have a great deal of respect for it. So I do find it a little bit, um, it, I've always thought of sports when people say it's a, it's kind of can be like war. You're like, no, it can't be like war. Sports, just sports. But to, to now do the, the shift, it did look like Wout van Aert had been to war when he won that stage the other day. <laughs> I was thinking, how are we going to segue this back to the Tour of Britain? That's a great I, segue. My, my segue... I, my segue was going to be Mark Cavendish won the stage to Utah Beach in 2016, and that was his first comeback. No. But I like, yeah, I like yours even better. So you're thinking of that amazing helicopter shot of mm. um, of Wout Van Aert collapsing on that grassy verge and the top and of that little like, climb, and he was like convulsing. That yeah, was properly. It was like, of, it was like he was having a sort of. It was rolling around, and then I, I mean, I just, I didn't, I saw that before I saw the actual finish of the stage. Yeah, and then you see the world champion Alaphilippe come up to him and kind of just sort of. That's brilliant. Just like do, a, do a light fist bump and then he collapses as well. Well, no, no, before, and he, I was like, before he collapses, <laughs> before he collapses, he kind of fails to unclip properly, doesn't he? So it's almost, <laughs> yeah, that's it. so weak he can't unclip. This is almost the most undignified kind of collapse of two skinny blokes on the top of this climb in Clandidno. Yeah, uh, it but it, is, but uh, it did. But Wout van I've never seen a champion like literally looking in pain. Yeah, he was like kind of kept going, kind of looked, did genuinely look like he he was in death throes. I know, I know, I know. And I was commentating live, and I was kind of just for a split second, I I kind of thought, is this all right? Is he okay? Like, because it it did look like, yeah, it reminded me of um once I I I presented for Channel Four the World Mountain Running Championships from Bettersea Coed. Which is actually, which is actually quite. I mean, really extreme competition, but the the, the race mm. itself is quite short. It's a sort of forty minute race or twenty five minute race. But they go up a up a mountain, down a mountain, up a mountain, down a mountain, up down down, and then they come into. They, they finished on this grassy green in the middle of Betisi Code, and this kind of almost village fate like you know, kind of running through a white ribbon tape. And I was stood right <laughs> there, and every single runner who came through in bits and pieces just did the wobbly leg, collapsing eyes <laughs> eyes rolling into the back of the head, kind of. And I ever I just stood there watching them all finish going is this okay and it reminded me a little bit of that the way how deep van art had gone it was incredible why 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 have we never done that climb before have we because it looked amazing um the the, so the penultimate there was a, they, they went up this long kind of like so the orm is a a little spit of headland yeah just sits next to the clandidno's beach you know, right. but it's kind of like a little chunky thing. And it's got two rope. Well, it's got this kind of like cafe at the top and a little yeah. station up there. And there's two ways you can go either around the headland on this thing called Marine Drive, which goes around the coast. Mm. And then they kind of went around that and then it punched up to the top of it. Now, the Great Orm climb has been used before on the milk race because Matt Stevens remembers, oh, there you, go. you know, back in the day. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't been used by the Tour of Britain before, but I think it will be again. Mm. Yeah, I watched, it, the, I watched a lovely little segment that uh, you guys had done with Barber and, and the captain. Yeah. And it was, so I was like, oh, it does look pretty cool. Oh, that and was, then I, oh the filmed piece that they went out and did yeah, early yeah, in the yeah. morning. Yeah, that was so yeah. funny. I, did, I haven't yeah. seen it, actually, but I just... the captain. That's really nice. It's, it's lovely done, yeah. Yeah, and, so uh, TV's Matt Barbet immaculately turned out, as we described. Beautiful. Yeah, he, beautiful. Sla- he, he snapped his chain. Through oh, the, did he? Through the, the did that make the edit? That he has. It's just a no, that was, no, no, that didn't make the edit. Oh, which is a shame. 
Because I trundled down to breakfast a couple of hours. They had to get up at half past five to film that. And we're filming yeah, by I six o'clock in the morning. I could see the sunrise. And I was thinking, ooh, poor Captain. Well, yeah, Captain it, wasn't it, happy about that. But uh, he, did look, he didn't look fresh-eyed yeah. and, and, and yeah. bushy-tailed. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I'd like Matt Barbet, who... who, who beautiful. Who, yeah, looked beautiful. Perfectly groomed. And... Um, and uh, yeah, but he snapped his chain just through the sheer force of his force. God, that's how strong the barbet is, huh? Yeah, he's a weapon. Amazing. Yeah. So what, what else has been happening since well, we, so, we should probably explain why we've been off a couple of days, I guess. Well, I don't know where to begin. Well, actually, the, some of that is, is explained in the interview that I've got coming up uh, with the captain, right? Some of it is oh, explained because there's at least one day where it's his fault. Uh, yeah, it is. His uh, which fault. he completely owns up to, actually. It's his fault because uh, I was doing a favour f- to him. Damn him. Damn, Damn him. him! Yes, um, and uh, but uh, on but the rest of it has just been our lives, hasn't it? It's just been us, just quite know, busy, and travel. And um, mm. Archie's turned ten, right? Archie turned ten yesterday. Well, so a, yeah, he's mate, a big boy. Ten's ten's a big deal. I know it's kind of a, you know he's going to be like an actual man before long, which is worrying. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's heading that way. Double digits. Like, yeah. I mean. What was his, without, you don't have to answer this because it might be revealing, but what was his main present? Did he get a big present? Did he get yeah, a no, so he got, um, he got a couple of balancing things. He got like a tight rope that we put between the trees outside. He got one of these boards that you put on um, a thing that you balance on. He got a bag for his tennis racket. He got a board that you, that you put on a thing a that you balance thing. on. There's, okay. there's a cylinder, like a cylinder. Yeah. Yep. And then you put a sort of a mini sort of skate surfboard on it. Got it. I, I can imagine and it. And then... That sounds and then, really. And then that, you kind of yeah, it's pretty cool. Yep. Um, got some Lego from his friends, Brilliant. and as I said, and yeah, and some shoes from his auntie for Fantastic. tennis, and yeah. some tennis bits and bobs. It was a really nice, yeah, lots of sport actually, sporty stuff he got in Lego. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's good amazing. old Arch. Oh. I had a great day though because we went to went to this amazing climbing place in the morning, and then a trampoline park in the afternoon. Brilliant. Yeah, lovely day. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. That was yesterday. Yeah. You well, yesterday. I went from Warrington to Newcastle. And I went out for a curry uh, in Newcastle. It was very good. And, oh, you saw um, daughter, didn't you? Yeah. So that was that was um, another reason why we couldn't pod yesterday. So it's just mm. been like there. Yeah, there's been stuff going on, and it's been it's been it's been tricky. Uh, but to catch up with the race, David, um, today was so, it? Oh, today. Well, was well. First of all, so because yeah. this is because I'm doing the recap from my point of view. Cause yeah. Jumping in and out. Yeah. We had so team time shows where team time shows. Yumba Visma got it. Yumbo Visma would have won it, but they um, they were man down already. So six man teams, you qualify four. So it's a fourth mm-hmm. rider across the line. They were already a five man team. Um, they uh, lo- they lost one rider en route, so they were they only had four coming into the final kilometre, and Pascal mm-hmm. Encon punctured. Oh come on! Yeah, yeah, seven hundred meters to go. Encon punctured, front wheel puncture. Thought about dropped off the back. Thought about getting a bike change. Oh, no, you can't do that. Uh, 700 metres to go. And then kind of like, and then just had to sprint for the line. And Van Aert, took a while for Van Aert and the rest of them to realise that Incorn was off the back. And then it was just like, they were, and then they had to do the waiting really fast for Incorn sort of thing. And poor old Pascal Incorn. So that probably cost them the stage win and it cost Van Aert the race lead at that point. Yeah. Fast forward to the next day where they where they have this big showdown, Alaphilippe and and uh, Van Aert on Great Orm, and Hater is at a disadvantage on such a steep climb compared mm. to those two. So they dropped him, but Hater limited his losses uh, very effectively. Van Aert takes back the jersey. The next the next day, um, there's a sprint into Warrington, 
and it just starts to rain before the finale. And um, uh, slap in, down. In, in, yeah, Ineos Grenadiers are on the front. Hate is beautifully placed on the right, right fourth wheel. Um, Owen Duhl um, presents the cycling world with a brilliant new tactic in order to get your man the win in a bunch sprint of sitting in fifth wheel just behind your, your protected sprinter and slapping down. Legend. Uh, uh, creating carnage with everyone behind. And the carnage um, hampered Mark Cavendish and uh, hampered Wout Van Aert, who was then uh, out of the bonus seconds and out of contention for a sprint. So it's all going to be... So then Hayter took the the jersey back. Today, um, Ineos Grenadiers, now they've got three more stages that could all end end in bunch sprints, including today. And really, the Ineos Grenadiers don't want, don't really want to bring it to a bunch sprint every day. In an ideal world, a bunch of nobodies take all the bonus seconds at the line, mm-hmm. right? But that's quite hard to manage when riders go up the road who are a GC threat. And today's GC threat, first one was Mark Donovan, who got taken out the back by Mark Cavendish. Like, no way. In home old roads. School. Yeah, old school. It was really interesting. Um, Adam and I talk about this uh, in the piece that we'll, mm-hmm. we'll hear in a second. Um, and there were quite a lot of histrionics from Mark Cavendish today. He got in the breakaway. There was a nine-man breakaway, then a seven-man breakaway. Cavendish was in it with Tim de Klerk. It was Lovely. kind of amazing. But the problem was, the Ineos Grenadiers, they, they, George Bennett was in, the, was in the move today, and he was only three minutes down on GC. So mm. Ineos Grenadiers had this kind of problem that they had to keep it pretty tight, because after all, it's George mm. Bennett. And there was a lot of climbing on this. 3,000 metres of climbing today. Ooh. <clears throat> so they couldn't give them five minutes. They really couldn't. So they mm. kept a little like, three and a half minutes because of Bennett. But but then they didn't want to actually bring the break back because they didn't want it to come back. But because they had to keep it so tight, that just encouraged other teams. That's like so good yeah, because somebody else is going to bring it back. So yeah, in the we'll end, try. you know, in the end, Movi Star, Israel Startup yeah. Nation and a bunch of others just got on the front and did huh. bring it back. Um, but then it didn't happen. It wasn't a bunch sprint. It ended up at the last 12 kilometers were absolutely brilliant with um, all the main hitters most of whom had another teammate, almost all of them did, in a kind of dozen riders off the front, including the top three in the, in the, um, in the, uh, in the GC. And Van Aert was isolated. He didn't have a teammate with him. But do you know what? He didn't need who, one. Who cares? Won yeah. it. Um, Hater oh, was, sec- well. was second. Alaphilippe was third. But Hater, wow. Hater I know, he's, a, he's amazing, really. Hater, <clears throat> sorry, started the day eight seconds up. Because, <coughs> sorry, because of the time bonuses, that gap has now been halved because um, Van Aert got a 10-second time bonus, Hater got a six-second time bonus, so boom, there's four seconds gone, right? Holy cow. Now, if that happens again into Edinburgh tomorrow, which it very plausibly could, that, that the race comes together, Hater takes second place to Van Aert, then those four seconds have gone, and then they go into the final stage into Aberdeen, zero level. Oh. This is, Which, uh, sounds like an amazing race. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. That's really cool. Good yeah. on Hater. He's taking it to Alaphilippe and Wout van Aert. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. That's and he's, I'm, I'm, I haven't, I'll be absolutely honest, I haven't seen him race. I've never, I've never, you know, actually, too, never been in any of races that, yeah, it's, he's been in those kind of, the other yeah. races. Yeah. Yeah. That's anyway, as ever, as ever, that's some, um, you know, that's part of the story. But I, I did feel like I've, I've been feeling a state of slight unease over the last few days, David, when we haven't been podding that I have been aware that damn your eyes and you tried your back on me, man, has become a bit of an internet 
<laughs> phenomenon of sorts, hasn't it? And people I've seen have started it popping up everywhere. People have started to shout it randomly at me on the street. Right, literally. I'm not even exaggerating. <laughs> I'm walking down the streets of Llandudno, and a guy rides past and goes, "Damn your eyes, man!" <laughs> but it's but, like your, this is like your Alan Partridge moment. Yeah, it's my total Alan. Yes, exactly. Aha! So, <laughs> so it's, that's exactly what it is. So, but I've been feeling slightly uncomfortable that the guy I'm working with every day has no idea what's going on because he doesn't. <laughs> Have you explained it to him? Well. I thought on the drive up to Edinburgh today from Newcastle, I thought I'd better come clean, right? We had a long drive. And um, forgive the audio recording on this because there's all the rumble of the motorway and everything. And I, <laughs> I just recorded it on my phone. So it's not the same quality. But you can hear um, the thoughts of, of Captain, Captain Blythe, not just on, um, well, eventually you'll hear my confession. Um, uh, but before that, actually, some really interesting reflection on, on not just his new role as a commentator, but also on his friend Mark Cavendish and on the race itself. Here we go. This is our little drive up to up to Edinburgh. I think the best transfer we've had was after the first couple of stages. But we've only been in the car together two stages. I had my car. Oh, yeah. Then we left in Milton, didn't we? So that wasn't too bad. But it's actually all right now. We get to split the driving. So we get a rough route so far about an hour and 20. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and a half beat. We can, we can deal with it. <laughs> and, then, and then you have the mad dash for crisps. Yeah. <laughs> we have to get to the service station to swap over. And I run in, sprint in, grab a big bag of Monster Munch or Pringles today is the option. No choice, sorry. And back in the car. With a bit of fudge in this case. Yeah, and it is, it is always a full-on sprint, isn't it? Because, and this is the one lesson you learn, like, in... in, in you learn very quickly when you're doing this job on the road, whether it's the Tour of Britain or the Tour of France, it makes no difference. <laughs> is that literally, when you're travelling around, every second counts, doesn't it? Because yeah. you just... <laughs> I mean, any slight delay, and I, I mean seconds rather than minutes, just grates away at you, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm sure you're, like, cursing when I run into that fuel station. You're like, for God's sake, that's another minute, that's another minute. But we did discuss this, that... If you go wrong when you're driving to the start of a stage, you're generally like, Doesn't oh, matter. yeah, fine, whatever, it's, it's cool. But then when you're driving to the hotel, like the arrival time is now 19.23, one hour 20 to go. If that go- goes to 19.24... It's like a like, collective inward sigh, isn't it? It's just like... Yes, oh, God. And it happened yesterday, just before we arrived at the hotel... We went the, I went the wrong way, and it was like, it's happened. <laughs> it's finally happened. You've gone the wrong way already. First day driving the car. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't your fault. It was the, but it was. We, it's funny, we discussed it the previous day. It's the old overshooting <laughs> the, over the motorway junction oh, thing, isn't it? That's what it yeah. is. When you go four junction, when you pass one junction, well, and then sp- the next. And you, cause, yeah, because it wasn't clear on the Saturday. You go, I'm supposed to come off here? We come off here? Oh no, yeah, we were. We were. Yeah, Yeah, completely gone. It's actually the UK is not too bad for it because generally the junctions are all roundabouts. So you can get on, you can go off and come back on. We're in Europe. The junctions are like leading down to another motorway, just one road. So if you you mess up in Europe, technically it's another 15, 20 minutes. Whereas here it can be like five. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but we've done all right so far. It's nice to be on the A1. (laughs) <laughs> a shame that we can't use cruise control and yeah. we have buses to contend with and also we have pulling out traffic trying to cross the road cattle yeah Edinburgh 61 miles to go Oof. get there we get there um, 
So we've missed, we've, me and David have missed quite a few podcasts <laughs> on our daily podcast, and I can't remember what's happened. I can't, the last stage I just, oh my God, we've missed so many. <laughs> I don't think we've actually t- talked about the racing since Robin Carpenter won. <laughs> in Exeter. I, I can only be blamed for that on one evening as well. Yeah, you can be blamed on that occasion. One evening, I, you, you can blame me for that, so I apologise to everyone listening. Sorry for the absence, but the rest of it is on you. Sorry, mate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is on me. It's been really good. But today, so we, yeah, we've had the team time trial with the puncture. We've had the climb up to the Great Warm, which is Alaphilippe. And that's the yeah. day you missed the podcast. It's that evening and we went to do our little shindig that we did. So you missed that day. And that was... That was my fault. Yeah. That was David was trying to ring me while I was sitting downstairs having a drink with you. And I had my phone on silence because I, I was doing commentary mode, wasn't I? Yeah, sorry about that. No, it wasn't your fault. That was me. And then, you know, it started, got a message from David saying, too late now. Yeah. I'm off out to dinner. It's too late. You missed you missed a window and it shut. <laughs> then the next, then the next, <laughs> the next occasion was your fault. Yeah, apologies. Big apologies. Yeah, yeah. And then the next one was my fault. That was last night because uh, I took uh, my daughter out for dinner in Newcastle. And um, and now we're on the road to it. And we're going to pod. We're going to pod later. That's the ambition. But generating a bit of content here. But today's race was a belter, wasn't it? Yeah, we discussed when we got in the car. We always like to have a little debrief, don't we? We don't like necessarily what we screwed debrief, up. Yeah, <laughs> but what we screwed up. But it's more. I think when we do the commentary, like I like when racing's good, it's so good, and you do get buzz. You're like, oh, that was a good one today. But I said to you that I enjoyed the start more today than I did the finish because when the attack started happening towards the finish, it was brilliant. But inevitably, we Whack kind of knew what was going to happen pretty much. Yeah. Um, but the start. It was just chaos, and then Mark Cavendish getting in the break with his teammate Tim De Klerk. There were so many different possibilities with it, and then behind we just thought, "Any of us are happy with this?" Which they were, but then for the other teams, getting Mark Donovan out of the breakaway, so DSM like, "Well, if you're going to get us out of the breakaway, we're going to bring you back." So there's so many things that happened, and so many things we could analyse and talk about and yeah. try and explain with so many different outcomes. So I, I love that, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, that that was a that was a brilliant stage of racing, and it also kind of presented me. I, I don't think I've ever seen a, <laughs> a rider remonstrate with a camera bike for quite as vociferously and as explicitly and quite targeted actually as Mark Cavendish did today. I mean, he knew, you know, he's such an expert. He knows perfectly well if he shouts loud enough, that will be picked up on live television. He's literally schooling the viewers yeah. on what he perceived to be the unfair influence of the motorbike. Yeah, sadly as well, that if someone does talk to a motorbike, we generally all stop talking so we can hear what they're saying. In that case, it probably would have been good if we could have just kept talking and be like, ah, no. <laughs> made a lot of noise very quickly. But it is, it's very difficult. We talked about it on, on air, didn't we, that he's, he was obviously suffering. He'd obviously just made a big effort to get back across the breakaway after distancing Donovan. So I think, you know, his emotions are high and he's tried hard. He had to shout him, the clerk, to wait for him to let him know he's coming across and Tim! Yeah, Tim! <laughs> so I think with that, it's obvious, there's a reason why he's doing it. It's obviously frustrated. He's trying hard, and that's when all your emotions come out when you're on the edge, isn't it? But at the same time, we saw after the race behind the scenes, the motorbikes getting a bit of a bollocking, the commissaire, you know, giving a hard talk to the motorbike driver. And it's not like they're not doing it on purpose. So there's always two sides for every story in the the repercussions of the motorbike, they were trying to help them. They weren't going, right, lads, come on, get on the back. They were just filming, they were just doing the job. And 
it obviously it happens in every race. There's so many motorbikes in the race. You'll always get a draft. And those poor buggers on the motorbike have got to go home now and be like, oh, for God's sake. I've just got shouted at just by got shouted at. former sports personality of the year. Yeah, and also I've got shouted at by my director. I've got shouted at by the race director. It's just, it's just not, it's just like going to work and having all the people in the office abuse you for the next half an hour and then going <laughs> home and be like... <laughs> you came out with a great line on telly. <laughs> I was talking about, the, the, I was saying that, but I was kind of making that point. I said, uh, you know, the camera guys are sometimes just caught between a rock and a hard place and you said, or a rock and Mark Cavendish. Yeah, which is probably worse. <laughs> it's definitely worse. Yeah. yeah. So, I do feel sorry for him, but ultimately, like I said, they're not doing it on purpose, are they? And it does make a little bit of good entertainment. <laughs> yeah. It's been... Um, it's quite. It's it's. Um, I'm kind of really looking forward to the final couple of stages because they're tight, isn't it? We've, you know, it's hypothesising that it might. They might actually be level on time going into the final stage, which yeah. means that they're not win. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's very. Hard, it's kind of hard to see how Hater's is going to manipulate this to ultimately to his advantage. But but he's really come of age, isn't he? I mean, it's been um, all year consistently every achievement. I remember actually that. That year that Remco kind of broke through and won every stage race that he entered, starting with San Juan yeah. and moving on. Each successive stage race that he won that year was a notch up, notch higher, wasn't it? Yeah. And this feels like Hater's trajectory this year, just adding another layer of kind of, yeah, um, kind of uh, confidence and growth to what he's doing. And it just, each thing is incrementally bigger and better, isn't it? Yeah, it's when I think we knew he was in good form, didn't we, when he came into the race, but as you say, he's just getting better and better and better, and we saw at the finish today, Mark Bernard came round him, and he hates to have such a big smile on his face, just to be like, I can't do anything, there's nothing I can do about this, it's just, it is what it is, and he knows how good Mark Bernard is, we all know how good Mark Bernard is, but more importantly, Ethan Hater, I think, realising probably how good he actually is. Yeah. And, and also us realising it as well, because it's been lined up against don't forget third place Alaphilippe world champion Wout Van Aert probably going to be world champion in a couple of weeks by the looks of things the way he's going I've seen other riders but he'll be up there for sure and I think to just be sprinting with them and competing for the win with those two people and Ethan Hayter said it in his interview it's just cool to be riding with these guys and ultimately he's still a little kid so it's for him I think he's discovering more of what he's good at and the more he does that the more belief he'll get the more he'll expect from himself the more he'll want to push himself from that so I, I think as he's young Ethan Hayter is going to turn out to be similar lines to Pitcock really one of the best riders the UK has got it's brilliant isn't it we've just passed the border into Scotland by the way and we are right next to the sea and we're it's right gorgeous. next to the sea those cliffs that's amazing the sun's just beginning to dip a bit lower now just, we made it. We made it to Scotland the last two stages. Yeah, I, I think the other thing about hating, you know, you have to be really, really, really kind of quite deeply into your cycling or paid to commentate on bike races uh, throughout the year to have actually um, followed a lot and, and seen Ethan Hater race over the last couple of years. Because you know, there how, how many of us made the time during the day to watch the Tour of Norway on the telly, you know, or, or to see that stage of the the soul that he picked up. Yeah. Um, but this bike race is attracting a lot of attention, especially on these shores for obvious reasons. And it, it, it's on free to air telly as well, so audience swells in size. So for a lot of people, um, this is the first time that they've really kind of 
oh yes, so he does that and he does this and he's we're kind of noticing how he handles himself. You've noticed for the first time, we've, we've both noticed that he's, he's very he's confidence in his own ability. He's very cool ahead. He doesn't seem to, and that he likes sometimes surprisingly to kind of drift to the back of the bunch and that's... Uh, yeah, do you know what's interesting? He's very calculated. We saw on the Great Orm there, that climb he did where he was fourth. He didn't try to follow Wout Van Aert. He didn't try to follow Wout Van Aert. Um, Michael Woods and Wout Van Aert and Alaphilippe. He just went up at his own speed, did his own effort, which is very Ineos, let's say. That's very Ineos. But at the same time, within the stages, he's doing the exact opposite Ineos thing, which is not sitting with the team for the majority of the day, sitting back where he knows it's best for himself as a rider. And I applaud that all day long. The way that Ineos rides, it's, it's great for some people, but it's not necessarily the best place to be the whole time. And I think Hater might be recognising that, and the team is obviously, they're not going to argue with it, because Price wants to argue with it. He's doing everything right at the minute. And even at one point, chipping off the front as well. At one point, yeah. So he's kind of, yeah, he's, he kind of is in the but he's also his own man within that. Really interesting to watch. Um, Quick so, update. Go on. We've made a minute up. 1922 now we're right <laughs> oh, we're doing well <laughs> that's a result that's a result um, Adam why so we've done this whole thing on this podcast it's been quite a thing I don't know you've been aware of it but I I asked when we started doing this and I started working with you I said I've always known because David has always referred to you as the captain yeah but I've never known why and I didn't know whether it was a it was just a private little nickname that he had for you, but it turns out he kind of bestowed that nickname on you. Yeah. Right. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, he did. It's when I was working for Chapter oh. 3. He came up with the captain. And do you know, you know why? Yeah, the pirate of a ship or something like that that wasn't the best, didn't have the best pirate ship, but was all right at doing pirating, I think, something along those lines. Yeah, Captain, the mutiny on the bounty story, Captain Bly. Yeah. Right, there's this character, Captain Bly. And um, that's become a bit of a thing on podcast. And we dug it. Somebody dug out a American listener. She dug out a clip from the Anthony Hopkins film um, of the mid nineties or eighties or something, where he plays Captain Bly. And I'll have to play it to you. It's this brilliant clip where he's he's having a go at a young Daniel Day Lewis who's losing the, the mutiny. You know, the mutiny character. Your character says, "Damn your eyes! Damn your eyes! You turn your back on me!" In an Anthony Hopkins voice. And it's become a bit of a catchphrase on this podcast to the extent that. When Marie and Clan did know the other day, and you were off filming some stuff, and I came out of, you know, because we were at the foot of the Great Orm, and, and all the, there were lots of people, lovely evening, and there were lots of spectators still milling around when we finished work. Yeah. I stepped out of the commentary thing, you, you were long since gone, and as I stepped out, literally two different groups of people cycled past me, and as soon as they spotted me, went, damn your eyes! Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you turn your back on me! So that's become, without you even knowing it or being aware and certainly not giving your consent, <laughs> that's become your catchphrase, I'm afraid. Yeah, I like it. Damn your eyes. Damn your eyes. And then you turn your back on me. I think this is what we have to try and get into air tomorrow. Oh, that's a challenge. Yeah, that is a challenge. Um, yeah, we've got to try, haven't we? But yeah, I'm, I'm very happy You're with right it. With that. Yeah, fine with it. Good. Yeah. I can relax now. Really? Because it's been, kind of been, been happening behind your back, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing, I just, just to just sort of round it off, I, that really intrigues me about you, and I remember you saying this, I can't remember what context was a while ago, is that you were asked by someone um, how you know racing compares with commentating. Yeah. And the standard response to that would be they're very different things. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of accepting the new challenge and all sort of thing, you know, but you know, you can't compare the two. You just said, it's brilliant. It's better. I'm loving commentating. Yeah. Which is a really unusual take, I think, for um, 
for an ex-pro, but having worked with you now for a few days, I can see that you mean it. You really, you really enjoy this job, don't you? Yeah, absolutely love it. I think you know. I think one of the hard things about a bike rider is you. For me personally, the way I was as a bike rider, I could I was very um, efficient. So it was very easy. Could move up the peloton easily. Didn't have a very big engine, but I was always there and a little bit back to the the captain nickname a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think you know analyzing things when I was racing, the way people are sat on the bike, the way people are moving, the way just the way the peloton's shifting a little bit and just little bits of moving up here and there which look normal to us on TV but the repercussions of it and being a bike rider and not being the strongest ever learning what each of these meant and going back we discussed today um, on the climb I said that I'm surprised Cap didn't go back for more bottles on the climb he was suffering but ultimately there's no limit on the amount of bottles you can get from a car don't forget if you go back to the car you get a little sticky bottle Every time you go back, so if you're getting dropped or you feel like you're going to get dropped, hand in the air, bottle, gives you that two second respite <laughs> and a little bit more speed. So there's all these little bits where you see on TV now, and I really think there's so much to be gained, there's so much more to do, there's doing too much, and the example of Rory Townsend putting his rain jacket on. All these little bits add up massively. So when I see this and I can talk about it and I can explain people to people, uh, why and for what reason and what effect it might have. It's ultimately pleasing the cycling geek, I think, which is watching it. Also, it's very simple of taking a rain jacket off. It's costing him more energy. Of course it is. He has to go back to the team car, then go back. So it's just, a, for me, it's just commentary is almost about educating people on what's happening and why, it, why it's happening and then the repercussions of it and then looking at all the various situations and comparing them and trying to for me, figure out which one is the obvious one, by the way, that they're riding, the way the riders are sitting in the peloton, all that kind of stuff. So I love it. I absolutely love it. And today was exceptional because we had proper bike racing. And when you do that, I'm sure as you're all well aware, when you have proper bike racing, it's a lot easier to commentate on. Yeah. 50 miles to go, and the gap is one hour and four minutes to Edinburgh. So there we go. There's Captain Blythe. I've come clean now, so he's fully engaged. And as you heard in the interview, David, he's actually doing it himself, which takes it to a whole new level. Oh, is he doing it? Oh, takes it to a whole new level. So he's he's into yeah. it now. He's fully engaged. Yeah. He's fully engaged. Yeah. Good. Good. Did he talk about? Can you remember the origin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, no, he couldn't. Really. He said, "Oh, yes, it's something." He said something about some pirate ship, and it was something David came up with. Or something, you know, kind of. It was a bit. Ha- it was a little bit hazy. Um, he's trying to goad me at some point tomorrow to slip into Pathé newsreel style commentating, which I think might be quite fun. Oh, good job! You should. You should. You should yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah, I highly yeah. recommend you doing that as well. I'm, I back the captain. The on city that of one. Edinburgh looms large on the horizon as the peloton begins to bear down. And it's Mark Cavendish, the attacking young rider from the other, you know. So do a little bit of that. I might, I might indulge a bit of that at some point. Um, oh, you must. But just before we leave, before we leave the podcast alone, David, and, 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 and hand over to our final contributor, who is once again Professor Dumkopf. Remember him? Just to, <gasps> the, the University brilliant. of Floating Facts. Um, he, he's going to round the yeah. programme off, but he wants to talk about Edinburgh principally. And I just wondered whether Ooh, you had Edinburgh. any kind of particular feeling for the city or because we did and I like a few I a few do, podcasts yeah. ago I, I did dare to venture and you know into kind of 
difficult territory with you and kind of like question your question your Scotland, relationship with Scotland. Scotland. They got properly slapped down. And you and I, you and I have been to Edinburgh a few times together. And I'm, I'm just wonder what yeah. you feel about the city because I, I adore it. I, I love it. Uh, during my when I was banned uh, from cycling in the 2004, you know, you kind of lost everything. And actually, it was, it was strange because Scotland kind of became a home again. And there were all the Scots that took me under my wing. Uh, and in particular, uh, a gentleman called Ian Dewar, also known as the Major. Wait, wait, wait. Spent the, kind of a lot so we've got time. the captain and the Major now. The Major, yeah. Really? So I, the Major had probably the biggest house in Edinburgh, Beachmount, uh, on Corstoffen Road. And it's this beautiful old, it used to be owned by the, it was built by the, um, uh, the head of the Bank of Scotland, uh, the late 1800s, beautiful, huge house that was turned into a hospital in the Second World War. And he'd converted the whole top half and one wing uh, into his kind of residence. And I just used to stay there for weeks at a time and play golf in the ballroom and kind of and be shooting air rifles out the window uh, at trees. And this is during my ban. <laughs> I've um, never heard this before. And- <laughs> it's amazing. Oh no, yeah, it's amazing. And I just used to hang out with the major, and the major just took me under my under his wing. And he well, wasn't. Hang on, can he, I two seconds? Can I just rewind a second because I'm my brain is trying to keep yeah. up with this story. <laughs> did you just say we used to? I got the thing about shooting an air rifle out the window, but did, before that, yeah. did you just say we used to play golf in the ballroom? Well, yeah, there was a big ballroom, and we just used to line up. We used to put a putt thing. Oh, at the you end did say play just, golf in the ballroom. That's what you said. Okay, fine. Just right. like golf, just like do putting, kind of length of the fine. ballroom and drinkies and talking about life. And late into the evening, it's it just surreal Amazing. times. But he was called the major because he was just a, a, an eccentric um, businessman, and he didn't. He'd always he was quite a social animal, but also very successful. But he was always first one really? up in the morning. And he'd always just be doing stuff. And so he'd wake up and one of his friends just said, was kind of coming battered into the house and he was just saw Ian going around doing things like, morning, Major. And so that's the Major. And that's so, and he, and I spent a lot of time in Edinburgh and it was my kind of reintroduction to Scotland after my many years in France and abroad. And so that's where I kind of realised that I was Scottish because everyone in Scotland was so kind to me and when I felt quite ostracised everywhere else. And so... Uh, it was a very, it feels like a dream now at that time. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I got very, very fond memories of Edinburgh and there's lots of kind of that. I think it's a beautiful hotel, that house now. So it'd be nice to visit it one day and remember the old days. Fantastic. Yeah. David, it's really nice to speak to you again. I haven't spoken to you in ages and it feels like a slightly like a bereavement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's weird, isn't it? It's like, oh. We're back in the, anyway, back back in the groove, the man. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll try yeah, and do it again yeah. tomorrow. I hope so. We should be able to do yeah, it tomorrow, so. shouldn't we? A couple of hours drive up um, after the stage yeah. up to Aberdeen, and then we'll do it again tomorrow evening, maybe, yeah? Aberdeen, got good stories about Aberdeen as Ooh. well. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, though, to play you out, yeah. here is Professor Dumkopf once again. Hope he doesn't make a habit of it. <laughs> Hello, Ned and David. Professor Dumkopf here. Yeah. We're awfully busy here at the University of Floating Facts with students graduating. You see, we do things slightly differently here at the UFF. We prefer to award certificates to our students before they actually attend any lectures. You see, 
That way, they can engage in any conversation with confidence, without the impediment of troublesome research. Now, when I last contacted you, I referenced Arthur's seat, the volcanic hill at the heart of Edinburgh. What I didn't mention, and Ned will know, the penultimate stage of the tour of Britain finishes at the foot of Arthur's seat in Holyrood Park. I thought it would be nice if I furnished you with some floating facts about the historic city. Edinburgh, just like Rome, is built on seven hills that can be seen quite clearly across the city's skyline. Steeped in history from medieval times through to the beating heart of the Scottish Enlightenment, producing great thinkers of their age. Philosopher David Hume, economist Al Adam Smith, who invented capitalism, the father of geology, James Hutton, who, by studying the sedimentary rock formations on Arthur's seat itself, discovered that the earth was millions of years old and not thousands, as was generally thought at the time. The city, though, has always had its dark side. Hangings, plagues, Birkin hair, the body snatchers. Indeed, Robert Louis Stevenson's great novel, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or Jekyll, to give him his Scottish pronunciation, is an allegory for the dual character of the city itself. Dr. Jekyll, the posh, uptight, upright, middle-class, Newtown, and Mr. Hyde, the naughty, rough, old town with its flesh-pots and shabines. The dark side has been represented in publications coming out of Edinburgh, with several being influenced and referencing drugs, train-spotting, Sherlock Holmes, Harry Potter. Irvin Welsh, who wrote about heroin use in the 80s, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle described Sherlock Holmes using cocaine. And as for Harry Potter, well, a brief visit to the town and you will realise that every second coffee shop proclaims to be the site where J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. I mean, if this was the case, the poor woman must have been so draked and caffeine that playing Quidditch was a physical possibility.
In cycling terms, it is the home of Sir Chris Hoy. Until recently, Great Britain's most successful Olympian. He of the thirty-inch thigh. Freeman of the city, gifted the keys to the castle, and permitted to drive sheep down Princess Street whenever he wishes, as long as the tram timetable permits. Well, that is Edinburgh. However, the finishing stages of the tour culminates in its most northerly point, Aberdeen, the granite city, oil town, and the home to the fiercest, noisiest seagulls in the northern hemisphere. Well, I hope you've enjoyed your adventure around Britain with the captain, and hopefully we can chat again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 